0: Hello you guys, happy Wednesday. What is up? I hope y'all are having a great week so far. If you're not, it's halfway over. I hope if you are in the areas where you are getting snow right now, you are staying safe and staying warm. If you are new here, hi, my name is Savannah and I am your host of Killer Instinct. Go ahead and hit that subscribe button, that way you never miss an episode. We post weekly here every single Wednesday and you are not going to want to miss it. There's also a Killer Instinct Instagram that you can follow to keep up with all things a Killer Instinct, and it is just Killer Instinct Podcast at Instagram is where you can find it. As you guys can tell by the title of today's episode, today we are diving into a monster of a case and a monster of a person. Today we are talking about Charles Manson. This has always been one of those cases that I've been afraid of, and I've stayed away from, honestly, because of the monstrosity of information out there and how many details there are, and it's a very intimidating case to cover. But it's also been one of those cases that I am incredibly interested in. And last week I ran a poll asking what kind of case you wanted covered this week, whether that was solved, unsolved, or serial killer. And Serial Killer 1, so you guys are getting one of the biggest serial killers in American history today. So with that being said, let's jump right on into it today. Charles Manson was born on November 12th, 1934 in Cincinnati, Ohio to his parents, Colonel Walker Henderson Scott and Kathleen Maddox. Now Charles's mother, Kathleen was only 16 years old when she had Charles. And Charles's biological father, Colonel did not have the best reputation. He was significantly older than Kathleen. And he had a very big reputation as a con artist. His name given at birth by his parents was Colonel. However, he was actually able to convince Kathleen that his name was Colonel, not because it was his given birth name, but because he was enlisted in the army. And that is where he got the name Colonel from, which is completely false. But Kathleen believed him entirely. And when Kathleen told Colonel that she was pregnant, Colonel actually told her that he had been called out on military business and that he would be back in a couple months. And Kathleen again believed him. When Colonel left, he promised Kathleen that when he came back, the two of them would be together and live their lives together and really painted this happily ever after picture that they would raise their son together. However, the second Colonel left, he never. Never reached out to Kathleen never said anything to her. And over time, it became very apparent to her that he was not coming back. In August 1934, so just about three months prior to Charles being born, Kathleen actually ended up meeting another man. This man is named William Eugene Manson. William was 25 years old at the time that he met Kathleen. And he also worked at a dry cleaning business. And the two of them seemingly really hit it off in the beginning. And one, once Charles was born, Charles ended up taking William's last name, Manson. Now what's interesting here is that on William and Kathleen's marriage certificate, it actually stated that Kathleen was 21 years old and William was 25 years old. However, that is completely inaccurate because Kathleen was actually only 16 years old when she married William. Like I said, Charles had been born on November 12th, 1934. So, Kathleen and William had only been married about three months before Charles had been born, but when Charles was born, William's name was put on the birth certificate under biological father something that i want to note about charles's childhood is something that he has said in interviews and in the media which is that his childhood he said was extremely neglectful he never felt love he never felt affection or any of that and that is simply not true charles was very very loved in particular his grandmother nancy Adored him, and he did stay with his grandmother a lot of the time. And when it came to Kathleen, Kathleen did love Charles, and she loved him to the best of her abilities. But you have to remember that she was only 16 at the time that she had him. Kathleen was in the middle of her teenage years, and she wasn't quite ready to give up the lifestyle that comes with being a carefree 16 year old for her actual responsibility in life now, which was being a mother. After Charles was born, a wild side of Kathleen started to come out. She started going out all the time and leaving Charles with different babysitters and as well as her mother Nancy. Kathleen would go out on these drinking benders with her older brother Luther. Luther and Kathleen would sometimes go off for days together. And during these days that she would do this, she would not contact her husband William at all. William had no idea where she was or what she was doing during these days that she was gone. And as you can imagine, after a while, William got absolutely fed up with this, and he was not willing to sit through this any longer. And after three years of being married, William filed for divorce from Kathleen on April 30th, 1937, saying that the reasoning for the divorce was a gross neglect of duty. Now, about two weeks prior to William filing this divorce against Kathleen, Kathleen actually filed a bastardy suit against Kirk. Charles' biological father which basically in today's terms is a paternity suit. She was filing against Colonel so he could pay some sort of either financial support or even emotional support. She basically just wanted Colonel to take responsibility for the fact that Charles was his son. Now, the court actually ruled in Kathleen's favor and ordered Colonel to give at least $5 a month to Kathleen for child support, which as you can imagine today seems like absolutely minuscule in comparison to what people today are paying child support, but it was a really long time ago. So he was ordered to pay $5 a month in child support. However, according to Kathleen, she said she never, ever saw that money. Now, something to know about Kathleen, if you haven't really picked up on it already, is that she is the type of girl who didn't want to go out and get a job to be able to financially support her and her son. What she wanted instead was to be able to find a husband or find a man who was already well-established, who could take care of her and her son so she didn't have to do any of it. She could live the lifestyle that she wanted to live, but she would be taken care of on the financial front. Now, two years after her divorce from William, Kathleen actually got arrested. She and her brother Luther were arrested on August 1st, 1939, after committing a robbery. And this story, we're going to quickly dive into it, is pretty, it's pretty interesting. Now what happened here is one day on August 1st, 1939, Kathleen and her brother's girlfriend were out together hanging out and they met this guy who was paying for all of their drinks. He offered to buy them dinner, was not letting them pay for anything. And Kathleen decided to take advantage here. And she got the idea of stealing this man's money. This man's name is Frank. And it was clear to Kathleen that because he was buying their drinks all night long, Frank clearly had a lot of money that Kathleen wanted. And Kathleen knew that she couldn't carry out this plan alone, so she decided to call up her older brother Luther, and once she told him about her plan, he decided he wanted in on it. So once Frank met up with them, they decided to leave the brother's girlfriend behind, and Frank, Kathleen, and Luther got into the car together, and they told Frank that they were going to drive to a different town. They were all going to go to a hotel together and kind of continue the party there. Frank didn't think anything of it. He got in the car with them and they began driving. Frank was the one driving the car. And once they drove just right outside of town, Luther ordered Frank to pull the car over and ordered him to step out of the vehicle. Once Frank stepped out of the car, Luther told him to turn around and he went right up to Luther's back and put an empty ketchup bottle that was just filled with salt up against Frank's back and told him that he had a gun and to give him all of his money for Frank to give Luther. All of his money. Now, Frank really ended up just calling Luther's bluff here. He didn't believe that Luther actually had a gun. He knew he could feel that it was not a gun. And that is when Luther then hit Frank over the head with this ketchup bottle. And Frank ended up passing out on the side of the road. He was completely unconscious. And that is when Kathleen and Frank took the money. It was not a lot of money. I think it was about $24, $27, which back then was a decent amount of money, but it still wasn't worth all. All of the trouble that they had gone through to get the money. But nonetheless, they took all of the money that he had in his wallet and the two of them drove away. Now, when this happened, Charles Manson was only five years old at this time. And when his mom was arrested, Charles was placed into the care of his aunt and uncle. He moved to his aunt and uncle's house in West Virginia. And he ended up living with them until 1942 when his mom was released on probation. During the time that Kathleen was incarcerated, Charles's aunt and uncle, didn't live far from the jail that she was at, so Charles was still able to visit his mom. He was still able to know that his mom was there and have her be a little bit a part of his life. That way, when she was released, the two could reconnect. Now, when Kathleen was released from prison, Charles was about eight years old at this time, and according to him, this was the happiest time of his life. His mom was released from prison. The two of them were restarting their lives together, and Kathleen and Charles moved to Charleston, West Virginia, together. Either. Even though Kathleen was freshly released from prison and she was on probation, her law-breaking behavior did not stop here. Shortly after their move to Charleston, Kathleen was arrested again for charges of larceny. However, she actually wasn't ever convicted of this. These charges were dropped, but this is just another example of the fact that Kathleen's lawbreaking behavior did not stop when she was released from prison. After these charges were dropped, Kathleen and Charles moved again, this time moving to Indianapolis where Kathleen met her second husband, which is a man named Lewis. Now I've seen a lot of sources that say that Lewis was this man's last name and there's actually no record of what his first name was. And all of the resources that I have looked have just called this man Lewis, so we are going to refer to him as that. Now Kathleen and Lewis actually met during an AA group that they were both attending and they got married in August 1943. Now contrary to her relationship with William, where Kathleen was the wild partier. This time it was actually Lewis. Lewis had an extreme drinking problem. He was a complete alcoholic, and he was never able to get his drinking under control. He also had a very big problem with Charles. He did not like Charles whatsoever. The two of them did not get along, and it caused for a very chaotic and kind of toxic household. So that really is the backstory of Charles's family life. That leads us up until he's about eight or nine years old, and that kind of gives you an understanding, hopefully, of what his family life was looking like. He was constantly moving around. His mom was in and out of prison and marrying all these different men and getting involved with them. But again, I want to reiterate that he was surrounded by people who loved him. His aunt and uncle loved him. His grandmother loved him. He just wasn't getting that direct attention from his mother. And as we've seen in the past with serial killers, especially with males, one of the main indicators of a serial killer, not all the time, but a big indicator is their relationship with their mother. That is huge and it can seriously impact them throughout the rest of their lives. Now, I want you to buckle up because now we're going to jump in to Charles and his offenses, and you are going to probably be shocked at how much trouble Charles got into as a minor, starting when he was nine years old, and he has confessed to lighting his school on fire. Following that, he committed a bunch of petty theft crimes, and Kathleen really didn't know what to do with Charles at this point. She didn't know how to help him, and she could see that he was going down a very very bad path, and she wanted to kind of get in front of the problem before it got uncontrollable. So she decided to send Charles to an all-boys boarding school in hopes of setting him straight and setting him up on the right path. Charles started attending the Father Gibbalt School, which is located in Indiana. This school is a school for male delinquents that was run by priests, and in his later years of life, Charles really described this place as hell and said it was completely similar to prison. However, other people who have also attended the school have said that it's not as bad as he's describing. The boys wake up, they go to school, they're allowed to play in sports activities. There's no doubt that this school was incredibly strict. It was a school for young male delinquents. That's what this school was set up to be as. The teachers would give physical punishments if the boys acted out, and Charles said that he was on the receiving end of those punishments many times. Now, while he was at the Gibbult school, Charles did undergo a lot. Of psychological evaluations and psychological testing. Now these tests did show that Charles's academic skills were very fair. There was nothing seemingly wrong in his academic skills and it also showed that his IQ was above average. Now something that these tests also showed was that Charles had something called the persecution complex and this in essence, just to sum it up, is victim mentality. This is the type of person that thinks that everyone is against them and everyone's out to get them and they never do anything wrong, and they can never accept responsibility for anything that they did wrong. Now, Charles actually escaped the Gibbult school on two separate occasions. And each time, get ready for this, each time he traveled 75 miles back to where his mother lived. I don't know how he got there. I don't know if he hitchhiked. He had to have hitchhiked some of it. The idea that he walked 75 miles back to where his mother lived is quite crazy, but this entire story is crazy, so nothing surprises me. But when he would go back, his mother would have to send him back. She knew that she couldn't just bring Charles back in and pretend like everything was fine and pretend that he was all fixed because he was not. And while Kathleen would bring Charles in and hear him out and she would listen to him tell her all of the horror stories of the school, she knew in her heart that she had to make the tough decision of sending him back in hopes to set him up for a better future. So after the two attempts of walking to his mother's house, Charles knew that he needed to step it up a notch if he really wanted to get out of this school. So in order to do that, he started committing petty theft crimes and robbery. That way he would have to be transferred out of the school and into a juvenile detention center. So at the age of 13 years old, Charles was sent to Boys Town. Now Boys Town was located in Omaha, Nebraska, and it is a juvenile facility. It's a juvenile detention center. And Charles stayed there for four days. He stayed at Boys Town for four days before him and another juvenile in the facility named Blackie Nielsen committed two armed robberies in Illinois. Now, once he was arrested for the armed robberies with Blackie, he was then sent to to the Indiana Boys School, which is a much stricter reform school than the Gibbult School as well as Boys Town. This was a much stricter facility. Now, during his time there, Charles claims that he was raped multiple times by the students as well as the faculty. Now, Charles does have the tendency to exaggerate a lot of his stories. He has a tendency to lie and to stretch the truth. However, according to people who were there at the time, they have said that this is not something that Charles was lying about. Charles was a victim of sexual assault at this school. And because of his terrible experiences there, he ended up escaping from this school not just once and not just twice, but 18 times. He escaped the Indiana Boys School 18 times. In February 1951, Charles escaped the Indiana boys' school with two other boys, and they planned to steal a car and drive to California together. However, their plans were cut short when they made it all the way to Utah, but they got arrested in. Utah. After this arrest, Charles was sent to the Washington, D.C.'s National Training School for Boys. And when he got there, he again had to take a lot of psychological testing and a lot of aptitude tests. And this training school concluded that Charles's IQ score was about 109, which again is above average. And I want to talk about Charles's age at this point. At this point, Charles is 16 years old. So he has gone through at this point about four different facilities and he's only 16. All of this is happening while he is still under age. And in 1952, Charles was actually caught sexually assaulting another inmate in this Washington DC's facility. He was caught raping another inmate while he was holding a razor blade to their throat. And this resulted in him being transferred again to a different facility. This time he was transferred to the Federal Reformatory in Petersburg, Virginia. Now I wanna talk about Charles's build for a second because this is kind of interesting. So Charles at this point was on the smaller side. He was about five feet, four inches tall. Personally, I'm about five seven. So I compare it to just my height. You can compare it to your height, but he was a guy that was on the smaller scale. And because of that, you would think he would be an easy target for other inmates. Inmates see him, he's small in size. They think he's non threatening, and they can see him as a target. However, this was not the case. Even though Charles was small in size, he knew how to be threatening. He knew how to be intimidating, and it was all a mental game for him. While he was at the Federal Reformatory in Petersburg, Charles committed eight serious offenses at the Federal Reformatory that actually caused him to be transferred yet again. This time, he was transferred to a maximum security prison located in Ohio, where he was forced to stay until his 21st birthday. However, Charles, apparently when he got to the maximum security prison in Ohio, decided to start changing up his act, and he was released one year prior to when his scheduled release was. He was released in 1954. And once he was released, he ended up moving in with his grandma, Nancy, which again is Kathleen's mother. As far as where Kathleen's life was when Charles was released, she was still married to Louis. However, like I said, Louis was not a fan of Charles. He did not like Charles. They didn't get along, and Kathleen kind of sided with Lewis in this sense. And Lewis was also still struggling with his alcoholic addiction. He was still drinking all the time. And Kathleen just didn't want to have to deal with the two of them. She would rather just have to deal with one of them and the person that she chose to deal with was Lewis. In January 1955, Charles met his first wife, which is a woman named Rosalie Jean Willis. So Rosalie was a hospital waitress and the two of them got pregnant pretty quickly, but of course, Charles could not keep out of trouble. Charles and Rosalie moved to Los Angeles and just about 3 months after their move, Charles was arrested again. This time he was charged with a federal crime because he stole a vehicle in Ohio and took it across state lines all the way to California. He was given five years probation, but after failing to appear in court, he was then sentenced to three years in prison at Terminal Island located in San Pedro, California. Now, while he was in prison, Rosalie did give birth to their child. This is Charles Manson's firstborn child, and they named him Charles Manson Jr. Now, for about the first two years that Charles was serving his sentence, Rosalie would bring her and her son to visit Charles. She would allow Charles to see his son, but after the two-year mark hit, Rosalie started seeing a different man and she ended up moving in with him. Now, obviously, this did not make Charles happy and two weeks before his parole hearing, he actually tried to escape the prison, but it was unsuccessful and he got caught. Charles was given five years probation for his attempt in escaping and his parole was denied. Okay, we're going to take a short break, but we will be right back with more of the Killer Instinct podcast. Imagine an app designed to make you use it less. Seems a little counterproductive, right? All right, you guys, welcome back. So we're going to fast forward a little bit to March of 1967. March 21st, to be exact, of 1967, Charles Manson was released from prison. At this time, he is 32 years old and has spent more than half of his life in different facilities and reformatory schools. And once he was released from prison, Charles met a girl, and this girl is named Mary Bruner. Mary was an assistant librarian at the time that she met Charles at 23 years old. And both of them were living in California at the time that they met. But Mary was originally from Wisconsin. Now, Mary was an introvert. She was extremely introverted, but you have to remember the time period that we were in, that we're looking at. And this time period is 1967. And this is when the time period of free love was super implicated into everyone's lives and everyone was a free spirit. And Mary really wanted to be a part of that lifestyle. She wanted to be a part of that, but she couldn't get herself to be comfortable to get out of her introverted ways. That was until she met Charles, and Charles really brought Mary out of her shell and was really introducing her to a whole different lifestyle that she was not used to. Once Mary met Charles, the two of them started dating, and Charles didn't have a place to stay. He didn't have a place of his own, and Mary offered him a place to live with her. And at first, this was kind of a a you-can-stay-here-for-a-few-days type of of ordeal, but Charles really took advantage of this, and he basically just moved in with her permanently. The two of them did begin dating, but Charles wasn't exclusive to Mary. Many times, Mary would come home, and Charles would have a different woman there each night, and obviously, this really upset Mary. She was not a fan of this whatsoever, but she just kind of went along with it. She was madly in love with Charles and thought that as long as she was Charles, his main focus, the other girls didn't matter as much. She could put aside the fact that Charles was seeing other women if at the end of the day, she was his priority. Now, they were in San Francisco, and during this time period in San Francisco, there were a bunch of teenagers coming to San Francisco on buses looking for new opportunities. Like I said, this was the free love summer, and a lot of people wanted to reach their highest spiritual awakening. And a lot of these people were mostly vulnerable teenagers that did not know where to start. And this is when Charles Manson comes in. Charles Manson quickly started forming a group of followers. And these followers mostly consisted of young women. There were men involved, but the majority of the group was younger women. And he called this group of followers, this cult... The Manson family. In total, in the beginning, the group had about a hundred different followers of people who shared Charles's passion of drugs such as LSD and mushrooms and sex. And this and it's basically what this entire group was shaped around. And Charles absolutely loved this. He loved feeling like a leader. He loved feeling like he had authority, that people were following him and people trusted him. He really really loved this. And eventually, the Manson family moved from San Francisco to San Fernando Valley, and they moved into this compound called the Spawn Ranch. Charles convinced his followers, this Manson family, that he was the reincarnation of Jesus Christ, and this family believed him. Charles was a white supremacist, and he was fixated on the idea that there was a race war happening at that time between the African Americans and the white people in America. And he was convinced that the African-Americans were going to basically kill all the white people. But the kicker in this is Charles thought that they were going to kill all the white people except the Manson family because that makes sense. He thought that they were going to get ahead of this race war and that the Manson family needed a white leader to lead them through this race war. And he was going to step up and take that position. Now, not only was Charles Manson heavily influenced by drugs, he also had an extreme passion for arts, more specifically music. He was extremely passionate about music and that's going to kind of play in as we continue and get more into the murders that were committed, but he was heavily influenced by a song called helter skelter Now, if you have never heard of this song, this is a song that was released by the band The Beatles. It was released in their 1968 album, which was called The White Album. And even though Paul McCartney, who was in The Beatles, has come out and said that these lyrics were basically a metaphor for the rise and fall of the Roman Empire, Charles took these lyrics and interpreted them in a very different way. He said, according to Charles, he listened to the song and said that these lyrics Were the indication of the beginning of a race war. Again, Paul McCartney came out and said, that's not true. That's not what the song is about. Charles Manson didn't believe it. So before we continue, I do want to talk about some of the more core and prominent members of the Manson family. So obviously we have Charles Manson, the leader of this, and another member of this family is named Charles Tex Watson. He goes by Tex, and that's what we're going to be referring to him as throughout the rest of this case. So he was also a former musician and actor at this time being in this family. Another member we have is Robert Beausoleil, who is also a former musician and an adult film star. Mary Bruner was also a part of this group, as well as other women named Susan Atkins, Linda Casabayan, Patricia Krenwinkel, and Leslie Van Houten. Now again, the Manson family had many, many members. At one point, there was over a hundred members, but these are some of the core people that are going to follow us throughout the rest of this case. And the Manson The Manson family cult is thought to have committed over 35 murders in total. And the first murder that we are going to talk about is the Hinman murder. When one of the members of the family, Tex Watson, had threatened a man named Bernard Crow to give him his money, that way he could give it to Charles Manson, Bernard had threatened Charles and his cult, and Charles did not take this well. Charles was also under the impression that Bernard was a part of an African-American organization called the Black Panthers. So because of this, Charles shot Bernard, and his original plan to get money from Bernard went completely out the window. So Charles ended up shooting Bernard, but Bernard did not die. He actually survived this, and because this was not a part of Charles's plan, Charles was convinced that Bernard was going to go and basically rat him out to the authorities. So he decided that the entire Manson family needed to move compounds, but in order to do that, He needed money. That's when Charles Manson was made aware that a friend of his named Gary Hinman was actually about to inherit a whole bunch of money, and Charles decided that he was going to take it. Gary Hinman was born in 1934 on Christmas Eve in Colorado. He went to college at UCLA and graduated with a PhD in sociology. His friends described him as a kind hearted man who was living in Topanga Canyon at the time of his murder. According to Gary's friends, they say that Gary had an open door policy for all of his friends. No matter what time of the night it was, no matter what day it was, if anyone ever needed him, they could always just come to his house, stay as long as they wanted, get back on their feet, and then go on their merry way. Gary was also an extremely talented musician who worked at a music shop, and it was said that Gary was an extremely open-minded person, and when he met Charles Manson, he befriended him and he basically opened his doors to Charles Manson. So like I said, Charles was under the impression that Gary was about to inherit a lot of money. This is about two hundred thousand dollars worth of money, to be exact. And Charles decided he was going to take it. So Charles ordered the members of his cult, Bobby, Mary, and Susan, to go into Gary Hinman's home and convince him to give them all of his money, which obviously, as you can imagine, did not go over well. Gary refused to give over his money, which resulted in him being held hostage for multiple days by the members of the Manson family. And ultimately, Charles ended up coming to Gary's house with a sword and sliced his ear off. Once Charles left, Bobby then stabbed Gary twice in his chest, ultimately killing him. But this was not the end of it. Once Gary had been murdered, Charles took Gary's blood and wrote the words political piggy on the wall with a Black Panther logo, the Black Panther organization that we were just talking about, to implicate that it was the Black Panther Party that committed this crime. Now, according to Bobby, the one who ultimately stabbed and killed Gary, He said, quote, I didn't go in there with the intention of killing Gary. I was going in there for one purpose only, which was to collect $1,000 that I had already turned over to him that didn't belong to him, end quote. What Bobby is referring to is the fact that he purchased $1,000 worth of drugs from Gary, and then he sold those drugs to a third party, and the third party wanted a refund, and Bobby then had to go get that money from Gary, which he also did not turn over along with his inheritance. Bobby said the main reason that Susan and Mary were sent with him by Charles was because Susan and Mary both had had a sexual history with Gary, and Charles was under the impression that if they both went with Bobby, the process of receiving the money would have gone a lot smoother. According to Bobby, he said he was disgusted watching Charles attack Gary with a sword. He said, quote, Charles said he was doing it to show me how to be a man, end quote. He also said, quote, I knew if I took him to the emergency room I'd end up going to prison. Gary would tell on me for sure and he would tell on Charlie and everyone else. It was at this point I realized I had no way out." End quote. So that is the first known murder of the Manson family. Now let's move on to what might be the most notorious killings that they committed, and probably is the most notorious killings that they committed, which were the Tate murders. Now, according to a woman named Joanne Dixton, who wrote an essay on the killings, she said, quote, Many people I know in Los Angeles believe that the 60s ended abruptly on August 9th, 1969. They ended at the exact moment when the word of the murders on Cielo Drive traveled like brush fire through the community, and in a sense, this is true. The tension broke that day. The paranoia was fulfilled end quote. Now let's talk about who was in this house located on 10050 Cielo Drive on the early morning hours of August 9th, 1969. So first you have Sharon Tate. Sharon Tate was an up-and-coming actress born on January 24th, 1943 in Dallas, Texas. She was the wife of a director named Roman Polanski, and at the time of her murder, she was 26 years old and eight and a half months pregnant with her first child. Now, Roman was not at the home that night. He was actually away in London filming a movie, so he was not there. But Sharon did have some friends over that night. These friends consisted of Thomas J. Sebring, better known as Jay, who was an American celebrity hairstylist. He was born in Birmingham, Alabama, and was the son of an accountant father and a stay-at-home mother. Jay served in the Navy for four years and fought in the Korean War before moving to Los Angeles where he changed his name to Jay Sebring. Jay met Sharon Tate in October 1964 and they actually started dating and their relationship lasted for about two years. Their relationship ended when Sharon was casted in a movie called The Fearless Vampire Killers, which was a movie that Roman directed. And when Sharon met Roman, she ended her relationship with Jay to begin one with. With Roman and Jay was actually not as upset about this as you may think once he heard that Sharon was dating someone else he ended up traveling to London where the movie was being filmed to meet Roman and actually befriended him and the three of them remained friends and Jay really thought of them as his family Other people in the house that night were Roman's friends, the first being named Wojciech Frykowski, and he was a screenwriter. He grew up in Poland and studied chemistry and had met Roman on a set of a movie that they were both working on. He was 33 years old at this time. Wojciech's girlfriend was named Abigail Folger, and she was also there the night of the murders. And if her last name sounds familiar to you, it is because she was the heiress of Folger's coffee. She was 26 years old and had graduated from Harvard with a master's degree in art history and also worked at the Berkeley Art Museum before moving to LA in 1968. On the night of August 8th, the four of them had gone out to dinner together and then returned back to Sharon Tate's home. Now, let's talk about why this house was targeted in particular, why this house was so significant. Now, the reason that this house was targeted by the Manson family was because Tex Watson and Charles Manson had actually been in that house multiple times prior to the murders, and this is because there was a music producer. This music producer's name is Terry Melcher. Charles was actually able to get in contact with Terry Melcher, and Terry had invited Charles over to his house on multiple occasions, and Charles was under the impression that Terry was going to give him a record deal. Like I said, Charles was extremely passionate about music and wanted to pursue it, and he met this fantastic music producer named Terry. Charles ended up recording several songs with Terry. However, Terry at the end of it did not want to give Charles this record deal. And Charles felt an insane feeling of rejection, which he did not handle well. And the next people that moved into that house, Terry Melcher's house, were Sharon Tate and her husband Roman. Now the members of the Manson family that committed the murders on the early morning hours just after midnight on August 9th were Tex Watson, Susan Atkins, Patricia Krenwinkel, and Linda Kasabian. And they were all under the direction of Charles Manson. So basically Charles was running the entire operation and the members of his family were just his puppets. Now according to the members of the family, Charles referred to Sharon Tates home as quote the house where Melcher used to live end quote and he also told them to quote totally destroy everyone in it and do it as gruesome as you can end quote now the intrusion into the home began when Tex actually cut out a screen of one of the windows and got through the house that way and then went to the front door to let in the other three girls now everyone in the house at this time was asleep that's why he was able to get in and then open the front door. Now, the first person in the home to be attacked was Wojcik after he was kicked in the head by Tex. According to Tex, when Wojcik woke up, he asked Tex who he was and what he was doing there, to which Tex replied, quote, "'I am the devil,' and I'm here to do the devil's business, end quote. Tex ordered the other girls to wake up the members in the house and bring them into the living room. Tex tied Sharon and Jay together by their necks with rope and hung the rope over one of the ceiling beams. That way, the two of them couldn't move. And because Sharon was pregnant, Jay did try to defend Sharon. However, this resulted in him getting shot twice and stabbed seven times by Tex. Susan Atkins was the one who killed Sharon Tate. According to Susan, she told her, quote, look, bitch, I have no mercy for you. You're going to die and you'd better get used to it end quote, and then she proceeded by stabbing Sharon to death. Sharon had actually begged the members of the Manson family to keep her hostage, that way she could live long enough to carry her baby to term, and then give birth to her baby, and then she said that then they could kill her. However, they did not listen to this, and they proceeded to killing her anyways. Susan then used Sharon's blood to write the word pig on the front door, and when it came to Abigail, Abigail actually gave Patricia $70 that she had in her purse, thinking that maybe she would be let free if she gave them money. However, this was not the case. Her and Wochak did attempt to escape from the house. However, their attempt was unsuccessful. They were ran down by the girls. And Abigail was stabbed 28 times. Times And Wojcik was stabbed 51 times. After all four people in the house were murdered, the murderers left the home and went back to their compound. The housekeeper was the one that found everyone in the house the next day. And there are pictures online of the actual crime scene of end of everything that was there and you can look them up if you want i will warn you it is extremely gruesome and extremely graphic now when it came to charles charles was actually extremely unhappy with the way that this murder was carried out he said that there wasn't enough fear inflicted on the victims it was a sloppy murder and he was going to show them how to do it the right way this time this time charles Tex, Susan, Patricia, Linda, and two other members, Leslie and Steven, they went on a drive the next night on August 10th. And this is when they landed on 3301 Waverly Drive. And this was the home that belonged to the LaBianca family. Leno LaBianca was the son of Italian immigrants. He served in World War II and became a Sergeant First Class in the Army Reserve. He had three kids in his first marriage and went on to his second marriage in 1959 and married Rosemary LaBianca. Rosemary grew up in Arizona and moved to LA in the 1940s. Leno and Rosemary lived in Leno's childhood home on Waverly Drive in 1968. Now, there are two different accounts as to what happened on this night. According to Susan and Linda, Charles was the one who went up into the house and got both Leno and Rosemary, put them into the living room together, and tied them up, and then came back to the car and told the other members to come into the house with them. That is not how Tex describes what happened this night. According to text, he said at first he went along with this story that Linda and Susan had made up because it made him look a lot less responsible for the amount of damage that he did. But according to text, he said that Charles and him went into the house together. They woke up Leno and then ultimately woke up Rosemary and brought the two of them into the living room. They tied both of their hands together and covered their heads with pillowcases and tied their feet together with lamp cords. Tex said Charles then left the home to get Susan and Linda and brought them inside and told them that both Leno and Rosemary needed to be killed. Tex had murdered Leno by stabbing him a total of 12 times and then carved the words, "'War.'" into his stomach with a knife. Rosemary was stabbed a total of 16 times and was then stabbed an additional 41 times post-mortem. So 16 times it took to kill her and then the additional 41 that were taken place post-mortem. Linda also stabbed Leno 14 times post-mortem and stuck a knife into his throat and left it there. Now, Charles actually left the house while these murders were taking place. He kind of set them up, told them what he wanted to have happened, and then he went home. So Tex and the girls, they took a shower at the home after they murdered them, and then they hitchhiked home. But Charles wasn't done yet. Once they got to the house, he actually wanted them to go out and murder another man, but Linda intentionally ruined this plan by knocking on the wrong person's door Intentionally, and they woke up a stranger. This was someone that Charles had picked out specifically to murder, and Linda ruined this plan entirely by knocking on the wrong door intentionally. Now, aside from those two murders, three other victims of the Manson family include Donald Shea, otherwise known as Shorty. Shorty was a ranch employee that Charles had convinced himself was a police informant, and he was killed by being stabbed to death on August 28th, 1969, when he was only 36 years old. The other two victims were James and Lauren Willits, and this actually occurred after the Manson trial, and this couple, James and Lauren, became friends with people who were a part of the Manson family. James was 26 years old, and his body was found over 100 miles away from the Manson compound, and Lauren was actually believed to have joined this cult for her own protection because she was pregnant, and she was worried for herself and her baby's safety, however, However, ultimately this did not matter because her body was also found underneath the house, underneath the compound. And police ultimately did find her daughter and her daughter was in the custody of the Manson family. And they were able, luckily, to retrieve her daughter. Her daughter was healthy and they were able to retrieve her from the Manson family. There are also other people who are suspected to have been murdered by the Manson family. And this includes 16-year-old Mark Waltz, 22-year-old John Philip Halt, and 19-year-old Reet Juvertson. So let's talk about this trial. The state of California tried Charles Manson for the Tate and LaBianca murders, along with Leslie, Susan, Patricia, and Tex. The trial for Charles Manson began on July 15, 1970, and on July 24, 1970, which was the first day of testimony, Charles came into the courtroom with an X carved into his forehead. Then, on October 5th, 1970, Charles actually tried to kill the judge. Charles attempted to kill Judge Older in the courtroom while the jury was still present. At first, Charles threatened him, and then he tried to jump over the lawyer's table. Once Charles was restrained and taken away, he then shouted while he was leaving the courtroom, quote, in the name of Christian justice, someone should cut your head off. End quote. Now, let's talk about Charles's testimony, because at first he was not going to make one. But once all the evidence had been laid out over a 22-week period, he said he wanted to testify. And the judge allowed Charles to testify. However, the jury was not present during this testimony. Charles said, quote, "'They're children that come at you with knives. They are your children. You taught them. I didn't teach them.' I just tried to help them stand up. Most of the people at the ranch that you call the family were just people that you did not want. I know this, that in your hearts and your souls, you are as much responsible for the Vietnam War as I am for killing these people. I can't judge any of you. I have no malice against you and no ribbons for you. But I think that it is high in time that you all start looking at yourselves and judging the lie that you live in. My father is the jailhouse. My father is your system. I am only what you made me. I am only a reflection of you. You want to kill me? I'm already dead. Have been all my life. I've spent 23 years in tombs that you have built." end quote. And after Charles read his testimony, he then told the other three girls, Patricia, Susan, and Linda, that they did not need to testify. On January 25th, 1971, the jury found Charles Manson, Patricia Krenwinkel, and Susan Atkins guilty of first-degree murder in all seven of the Tate and LaBianca killings. All four of them were sentenced to death. At the sentencing hearings, Charles trimmed his beard and shaved his head. He told the media, quote, I am the devil, and the devil always has a bald head, end quote. Three weeks after that, the three girls also shaved their heads after Manson, and after their sentence to death was said, Susan Atkins actually shouted to the jury and said, quote, You better lock your doors and watch your kids, end quote. Now, the Manson murder trial was actually the longest murder trial in American history at the time that it took place, and it lasted nine and a half months. Charles Manson was sent to the Los Angeles County State Prison on April 22, 1971, and during his time in prison, Charles gave multiple mainstream media interviews that are all out on the internet that you can watch. There's a ton of interviews made by this guy out on the internet that if you are curious, you can go watch. Now, during his time in prison in 2014, it was announced that Charles was engaged to a 26-year-old woman named Afton Elaine Burton. Charles gave her the nickname Star, and she had been visiting him in prison for at least nine years. But the marriage never ended up happening because Charles was suspicious that Star was only using him for his corpse to make money on him as a tourist attraction after his death. On January 1st, 2017, Charles Manson was rushed to Mercy Hospital in Bakersfield, but his doctors reported that he was too weak for surgery. He was rushed due to a gastrointestinal bleeding, but the doctors said that he was too weak for surgery, so he ended up going back to prison. Then, on November 19th, 2017, Charles died from a heart attack that resulted from respiratory failure and colon cancer at the hospital. Susan Atkins died in 2009, and it was stated that her cause of death was natural causes. Patricia Krenwinkel is still in prison at the California Institution for Women in the Chino District of Corona, California. And Tex Watson is currently incarcerated at the Richard Donovan Correctional Facility in San Diego, California. That, my friends is the majority of the Charles Manson case. I'm sure that there are a lot more details out there and that this story really is never ending, but that is the main gist of it, and I hope you enjoyed it. All right, you guys, that is going to be all for me today. Thank you so much for tuning in to another episode of Killer Instinct. If you are new here, hi, my name is Savannah, and I am your host of Killer Instinct. Make sure you go ahead and hit that subscribe button. That way you never miss an episode. We post weekly here every single Wednesday and you are not going to want to miss it. I'll be back next week with a brand new one. And until then, stay safe, guys.